Hello and welcome to another episode of A Wee Bit of Everything with your hosts, Lewis and Clark. Each time we've got the honour of interviewing an athlete, the questions are going to be shaped around the Scottish Physical Education School curriculum. This will allow us to get an insight into how athletes gather information on their skills and their fitness levels. It also reveals how they would plan a period of training to develop their areas of development. First hand, we will get a personal insight into how the mental, emotional, physical and social factors impact on their performance and how they manage these factors. So, Mr Burrow, what's in store for us today? We have a special guest joining a wee bit of everything. We've got Mark Beaumont on the show today, who is a British long-distance cyclist, broadcaster and author. So, Mark joins the show today to discuss what it takes to be a successful ultra-endurance athlete. What are Mark's greatest achievements in cycling then? First of all, Mark is best known for the incredible feat of cycling the globe. More than 18,000 miles in just 194 days. The 37-year-old rider smashed the world record by 81 days when he pedalled through the Arc de Triomphe in Paris on February the 15th, 2008 at age 25. He holds a world record for cycling around the world, completing his 18,000-mile trip, which is 29,000 kilometres, on 18th of September 2017 having taken less than 79 days to do so. On the 18th of February 2010, Beaumont also completed a quest to cycle the Americas, cycling from Alaska all the way to southern Argentina for a BBC television series. In the summer of 2011, Beaumont joined a six-man team to row from Resolute Bay in Canada to the location of the North Magnetic Pole. On the 1st of February, 2012, Beaumont and his team of rowers were rescued from the Atlantic Ocean when the rowing boat capsized during a crossing from Morocco to Barbados, which I'm sure I'll touch on later. On 21st of May 2015, he rode from Cairo to Cape Town, which is 10,000 kilometres, and broke the world record for the fastest solo ride for the length of Africa by finishing in 42 days and 8 hours. Just before we get started then, as always, if you see it on Instagram at a wee bit of everything podcast or on Twitter at burrow under slash mister or Cleland Lewis 94 we would welcome a share or a retweet as this helps us get the podcast out there so others can listen to it as well. At the end of the day, this podcast is by teachers and for teachers. Hi Mark, welcome to a wee bit of everything. Um, how's things? Doing well. Good to good to be in touch. You've 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 we've emailed back and forth, and I'm interested in this podcast series number thirty one. Yeah, it's, it seems we're just saying that before we came on as well. That's like six months worth of podcasts, and um, we've Super. been trying to do it one per week. So no, we're really enjoying it. But thanks very much for your time, and it's great to have you on. Um, before we get into it then, uh, could you give us and the listeners a little more background information on your professional and personal career so far? Sure, well I guess my career is um, not, not what's my career? If you were to ask, my daddy would say that I've not got a job yet. <laughs> no, no I'm, sure, I'm sure he's fine with it, but uh, I graduated in economics and politics. Uh, I was meant to work in uh, finance and uh, be an accountant probably. And what I've ended up doing is being an athlete, uh, an adventure athlete, um, a filmmaker. Uh, I'm now a partner in an early stage in investment fund. So I'm hugely passionate about entrepreneurship and startups. And 
I've got quite an interesting portfolio career where I try and support uh, some fantastic charities and educational uh, bodies. I, I've just stepped down as being the rector at the University of Dundee, for example. I'm still the honorary president of Scottish Student Sports, so work a lot with young people and policies. Um, but my real passion is adventure, travel, getting out there, filmmaking, storytelling, those things. Yeah, I touched on your uh, personal achievements in the introduction. Um, you've definitely, you know, been busy over the last decade or so. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that later on as, as we move through the podcast. Um, but when you're talking about um, your dad saying that you don't have a job, is that just because you're following your passion? You feel as if you've you've never worked a day in your life, if you almost, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I think I mean I you know obviously it's tongue in cheek and so far as anyone who has built their own career anyone who has been entrepreneurial and you know really tried to figure it out for themselves as opposed to you know a traditional career will know that you, you when if you do follow your passion if you do think things you things you're interested in in life you have to have a lot of grit you have to have a lot of drive you have to really back yourself you know, none of this is, is given to you. So, I mean, when I left Glasgow University and I was faced with that first dream to cycle around the world as a 22, 23-year-old, you know, getting to the start line was the hardest thing I'd ever done. You know, fundraising, getting people to believe in me. You know, it would have been a lot easier just to queue up and get a job the way my mates did at that age. So I can sort of glibly say that, you know, I've never worked a day in my life, but the truth is I've worked insanely hard and I work longer hours than most because I'm passionate about what I do. And I mean, there's no right or wrong. If you go off in life and work for a big corporation or work for the state or work for yourself, it doesn't matter. There's no, there's no right or wrong as long as it's your choice. And I think the biggest thing for young people is, you know, education matters. Of course it does, but education actually doesn't mean much at all unless you feel like you're in control, you know, you're in the driving seat. So I know some of the brightest kids from my school have gone on, and I'm 37 now, have gone on to be my age, and all the brains in the world have got them so far, but they've sort of realized that they didn't actually make many personal choices early on because they didn't feel they had the freedom to do so. You know, whether it's peer pressure, what, what my mates are doing, or parent pressure, or teacher pressure, there's just expectations in terms of what your life's going to look like. So actually, to step out and say, what do I want to do? What am I passionate about? How am I going to take my education and take it in my own direction? Is, you know, in many people's careers, the missing link. So being book smart will get you so far. But I think the people who, who are really driven in life and, and do quite well and fundamentally are happy, you know, happy is, happy is how you should really quantify wealth, not how much money you've got in the bank. Uh, yeah. people who are happy are people who feel like they're in control and they're used to making choices and it's on them and they don't think the world happens to them. You know, what the impact they create on the world is, is, is something which, you know, they've got a level of control over. So that, that kind of speaks to that, that truth about the fact that, you know, do you work a day in a life? You absolutely do. You graft. But the things you do matter to you, and uh, and you know that that sort of justifies. Oh, I think it only feels like a real grind if it's not your choice or something you're genuinely not interested in. Yeah, um, that's good advice. It's also the the risk element in there as well, isn't it? It's taking a risk on something that you're uncertain about. You know, there's no, there's yeah. no certainty going down the route of a career. There's almost that sort of certainty and that kind of safety blanket. Whereas, yeah, 
I mean, look, look, you know, we're, we're catching up in 2020. There's a lot of people losing their jobs right now and there's a lot of uncertainty. And, um, you know, I'm not saying it's easy for anyone, far from it. But I always feel that I'm used to... I'm used to hustling. I'm used to creating opportunities. I'm used to joining dots and, you know, creating ideas and, you know, backing myself. And, you know, those things are life habits. So, you know, if you've had a secure job for the last 15 years and then suddenly because of COVID you lose your job, that is a much worse situation than somebody who has always, out of habit, every single year, every single week, had to go, how am I going to create opportunities? How am I going to create value? How am I going to, you know, you know, create impact in the world around me as opposed to just being sort of task orientated you turn up you do your job you go home and you're paid for it so i think you know as i say you can have that mindset whichever job you're in but coping with change i think is easier if you're used to being sort of entrepreneurial and also you know we're, we're having this chat over zoom and you can see you know the, the wall behind me is you know all these records and stuff it's not you know, I've always tried to do firsts and fastests and stuff by definition, which has not been tried before. And if you if you make your career out of that, then people are going to tell you all the time that it's impossible. And it's only impossible because it's not been done before. So if there's no reference point for what you're trying to do, of course, other people go, well, how do you think it's possible? You know, they can't point at somebody else and go, well, they've done it. So therefore you can do it. So if you if you spend your career doing that, and I've done it for the last 15 years, you're faced with a lot of negativity. You're faced with a lot of people going, well, you know, good luck, but, you know, I'm not going to be a part of it. I'll be there to, you know, celebrate the finish line, but I don't want to be on the start line with you. It's very easy to get people to want to buy into success. It's very hard to get people to buy into risk when you're trying to claim something that's not been done before. But when you do that year in, year out, year in, year out, you get quite good at sort of getting people to buy into your belief systems and really being very good at planning and mitigating risks so it doesn't make me cavalier it doesn't make me a risk taker but it does make me somebody who's very process driven and who has the gumption to see through my ideas brilliant so mark we're going to move on to some uh, training related questions now um, sure obviously you've, you've achieved so many feats uh, around the world well, can i focus on the around the world in 80 days um that you were able to achieve as well and um, before before you kind of took on the expedition, did you obviously you've done it before? But did you have to you know test your fitness levels or do any tests? Because um, mm -hmm. that's what a big part of the National Five course, like testing and then developing a training program to then you know develop your areas of development. So mm -hmm. can you maybe give us an example of any tests that you had to conduct? Yeah, sure, loads of testing. So you're absolutely right. You know, I I, I had cycled around the world before. It's an eighteen thousand mile route. So I did that when I was twenty twenty three twenty four. But then when I came back to it, you know, over 10 years later, it was totally different. This time I was fully supported. So it wasn't really that sort of wild man expedition of carrying my own kit and trying to figure out where I was going to sleep every night. It was an out and out race. You know, I was trying to get around the world in less than 80 days at the speed of 240 miles a day. So I was out my scratcher at half past three in the morning on the bike at four, riding four times four hour sets every single day. So can you imagine riding your bike 16 hours every day for the next two and a half months going, you know, about a thousand miles every four days. So that level of detail around, you know, how you can have the conditioning the the fitness the the form to not break down so people think ultra endurance is about being strong and your ftp and like your max and you know what power you can put out it's not 
yet all those telltales are important in terms of knowing who you are as an athlete. But the ability to endure is far more about your ability not to break down. So anyone who's ever climbed to altitude or done ultra endurance will realize their first bodily system to slow down is not their legs, but their gut. How do you, how do you nutritionally get through the task and keep your digestion working when you're that, you know, it, it, you know you've been going, by the end of the world, I've been time trialing for 1,200 hours. So this is not just like running a marathon. Um, it's the body like being hugely suppressed in terms of its immune system, in terms of its recovery time. People don't really think about training as they think it's about what you do in the gym or on the bike. But training is really about your recovery. You know, breaking down muscle and, you know, what you do when you're training is only really a benefit and a build process with, uh, with enough recovery. Active recovery, your recovery, your sleep, what you do off the training is as important as what you do on the training. And it's only really in recent years that athletes and cyclists in particular have really switched onto that because it used to just be about nailing yourself as an athlete and pushing as hard as you possibly can. So, right, your question, what testing did you do? You do all the normal testings in the lab around your, you know, VO2 max, your, you know, your, your power thresholds, your intervals and whatnot. Um, I would, on the world itself, be doing a lot of like saliva tests, which would show all sorts of interesting stuff about your immune system, your immunology. It would show your cortisol level, for example, which is your stress hormone. Um, we would be taking bloods to see if I was iron deficient. We'd obviously be standing on the scales to see if I was, you know, losing weight, doing DEXA scans to see my, you know, body like density and exactly what was happening with your intramuscular fat and all those details. So in the year and a half it took to train up to the world, I was on a typical three week build, one week recovery process. That's quite normal for a cyclist where again, you've got that active recovery in your fourth week. And then for each block, block of time you've got a different focus so over the in the last three months before a big expedition ride you're transitioning to the conditioning to do the long long hours so if you think i'll be doing 25 to 30 hours a week in training but then when i'm on the expedition i'm transitioning to 16 hours a day that's a massive jump up in load now 30 hours a week is a massive schedule for training but it's still nothing close to what you'll be doing on the ride so most athletes would just get repetitive strain injury, you know, tendinopathy or tendinopathy or something that after four or five days, their, their, their tendons, their nervous system, their whatever, just their neck, their backside, their feet just can't cope with the, the hours and hours and hours and hours. So in training, you want to be pushing yourself much, much harder than you'll ever ride on the expedition. And then in the last three, four months, try and transition. So you're coming off that sort of peak fitness and it's all about load. It's all about duration. It's all about being able to do much longer hours. Yeah, we have to build up to that then, as you say. So, oh, for sure. There's yeah. much better bike. I mean, like I'm six foot three and 90 kilos. You know, I'm not the world's best bike rider. You know, I'm not the best bike rider in Scotland. You know, the ability I've got is the ability to keep going. So if you were to take somebody of my shape and size, you'd think I'd be better on a rugby pitch than on a bike. But actually, there's a lot of pro riders and roadies who just would break down over the hundreds and thousands of hours of riding that I do. It's just, it's just so different than, say, being a pro tour rider at the Tour de France. And um, I guarantee those boys couldn't do what I do, and I couldn't do what they do. Yeah. 
How long do you think it's like, do you think that's been since the very first time you cycled the world? Like, how long do you think it's taken you to build up that level of conditioning for your body? Like, because obviously the last expedition you did around the world was so scientific. You had a great team of people surrounding you down to the last, like, saliva test and all that kind of stuff. So that's like the real nitty gritty, proper sports science stuff. How then did you, like, say for the first one, you said it was kind of like on your own. What was your training and stuff like for that? How specific was it? Did you, how did you cope with the load and things? Then? I mean, back back then, I was trying to be scientific. I was trying to be professional. Looking back, it looked, feels like kindergarten. I mean, the reality yeah. was I was doing the best I could. You know, I was at Glasgow Uni. I went into the sports lab then. I did similar testing. But, you know, it was very basic compared yeah. to, you know, my performance manager for the Around the World in 80 Days was from Team GB from the Olympics, you know, supported athletes at four Olympic Games and Paralympics, my team was absolutely top flight and their advice and therefore the training plans I had were, were, were cutting edge. You know, first time around the world, I was trying to ride 100 miles a day and 100 miles a day, you know, most people could ride 100 miles a day if they had to. You know, it's, it's Glasgow to Edinburgh and back to Glasgow again. You know, if you put your mind to it, you could do that. I was riding four times two hour sets, you know, for half a year. Now, fast forward 10 years, I'm now doing four times four hour sets a day. So twice the time on the bike and my average speed for all those 16 hours is significantly quicker than the eight hours I did 10 years before. So you can't compare. You cannot compare mm. to, to average what I was doing second time around. Because if you mess up in any given day, you can say bye-bye to the 80-day dream. The margin of error on that race was tiny. So your question is, how long does it take to build up? You know, I probably couldn't have done that second time around if I didn't have the experience from the first. Yeah, and, in, yeah. and in between times, cycling 13,000 miles the length of the Americas, breaking the Africa world record from Cairo to Cape Town, traveling to 130 other countries and doing big expeditions. It all counts. It all counts. So when people approach me every week and say, I want to do big ultra-endurance expeditions, I say, go for it. Shoot for the stars. You know, dream big. I'll never tell somebody not to take on their their big dreams in the expedition world. But the second part of that answer is, you know, do your apprenticeship, learn your trade. And there's a risk these days that people think they can fall out of bed and cycle around the world for a record or, you know, row an ocean or climb Mount Everest. You can do all of these things, but physically and more importantly, mentally, psychologically, you need to know yourself. You really need to know yourself. The time it takes to build that grit, that resolve, that, that physical and mental resilience, the ability to endure quite simply, is totally different than if you were going out and doing a sportif ride or, a, or running a marathon. I'm not belittling these things, but you know, those, the mindset when you're doing a single day task is you, know, you can count your time down. You can think your way through to the finish. You know, there's the glory of the fact that however long it is, in four, five, six, seven hours, it's over. Yeah. You know, you're done, you can have a juice, you can sit in front of the telly, and then the next day you can feel sore and not get out of bed if you don't want to. On expeditions, and I've done four that last over half a year, it's your life, it's everything you're doing every day, and you've got to be physical and be switched on and keep the momentum going. And that ability to keep going and be accountable as an athlete is is very very different in the ultra endurance space. And I think a lot of um, a lot of athletes who are used to pushing themselves over relatively short distances, be it a marathon or a you know a century ride, just would struggle at that compound impact of days and weeks and months. Yeah, 
That's I guess that was kind of why I was asking because it was like Clark and I we tried to do it and we got in touch with you before just for just for some advice I guess we were just kind of novices new to it and we were wanting to kind of try and push yourself to do something like that but it was that injury factor that load and I guess just being quite naive and not really knowing too much about it and trying to trying to do too much before our bodies were actually properly conditioned to do it yeah um, and, the, and the wonderful thing is the body the body can cope with a lot more abuse than you might imagine you know it's that classic if the mind gives up the body gives up but um so we can normally physically do a lot more than we expect you know back in the how many times have you seen somebody you know absolutely crawling in a marathon like unable to you know barely put one foot in front of another at mile 20 and then they get to the finishing line and they put a sprint in you know it's yeah. amazing it's amazing you know uh, it's amazing what the body can do when the mind tells it to do so. You know, back in the days when we were running away from saber-toothed tigers or attacking tribes, you know, our body naturally had a reserve. Yeah. And that was very useful uh, in prehistoric times. Whereas in modern times, as performance athletes, we've got to be very aware of what we perceive as our limits and what is actually still in the tank. So if you've gone on a big hunt back in the day and you've killed your prey, then you still need the energy to drag that back to the village. So think in terms of a modern athlete. You know, when you think you're done, you ain't done. There's more in the tank. There's more physically you can do. As long as you nutritionally keep fueling the tank, you know, it's amazing what you can do. If you if you bonk, if you if you if you if you don't put the fuel in the tank, then then of course that becomes impossible. But if you as long as you fuel, your muscles will keep going. And the the the, the mental capacity to keep going and endure is fascinating. But you have to learn it. You have to understand it. You have to, you know, you, you have to experience it to know, well, I've done that, so therefore I can do that. Mm-hmm, that's it. Uh, you need those reference points, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Mark, right. so just take, taking it back just slightly, see the the physical test that you were doing in terms of power. Mm. Uh, did that did that help you plan your training program? Like if you weren't getting the right amount of power, or would you do some gym work? Yes. Yeah, so uh, right, two quick parts to that. Um, a lot of endurance athletes won't test power that much because they're like, okay, we're just going out at tempo, which is more like zone two. So if, yep. for anyone listening to this, like, I don't understand zone. Zone one is like warm up level. Zone two, you know, you're putting an effort in, but you can still happily chattel away like this. You know, zone three, you know, is, 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 is a good effort. You know, you're, you're, you're a bit out of breath. Your heart rate's elevated to more, well, it depends what your normal heart rate is, 130, 140. Um, but you can still, you know, breathe, albeit not, uh, you, can all, you can still speak, although not, you know, extensively. Zone four, you know, is, is, is pushing up beyond beyond like two and beyond thresholds so you're you're um you're out of breath you're you know your heart rate's up 160 whatever that range is for you as an athlete and then and then zone five is an all-out effort a max effort so people use all sorts of zones sometimes they split it by seven sometimes by ten but you know a classic zone five training my point is ultra endurance athletes will sit at zone one zone two so the old-fashioned way of training is you never push power, you never do intervals, you never do pyramid sessions, you never do like all the stuff that a normal sort of pro athlete would do because you think, well, I'm just going to go out and ride, you know, zone one, zone two. You have to push that. You have to push that top end. You've got to train effectively. You've got to push yourself harder 
so that you can push up what that zone one, zone two is. So if you think of it as a, like a, a pyramid, if you know what your max is, you want to be able to pull out the base of that pyramid. Um, and to be able to, so say, say I could do an eight hour ride at, you know, 150 watts. If I can pull up what my max is, then it will pull up and therefore lengthen the time that I can hold a higher power output. Um, so it's massive. It's massively important to push what your top end is as an athlete, even if you're not a sprint athlete, because then it pushes the average power higher that you can endure at. And um, again, a lot of a lot of endurance athletes just don't do that. They just go out and do long, steady state rides. Um, but it's interesting because when you actually then do go on the big rides, you're not really riding by power, or I'm not. I'm very much riding by feel because if you're doing mega mega hours on the bike you don't want to be staring at your cycle computer. You don't want to be riding by numbers. I think there's a big risk with the modern day athlete that they're told what to do by their computer. That's an output. That's not an input. It loses so much of the subtleties of who you are as a human being. So you need to first and foremost listen to yourself. If you feel bad, you know, don't override that because the cycle computer is telling you a different number. My point is, you know, you should know yourself first and foremost. You should be, say, stay aware of yourself as an athlete and then think about, you know, if I feel good or I feel bad or that sort of emotional response to effort is as important as the metrics of your heart rate or your power. So I'll use power on big rides as a limiter. So if I'm going into the headwinds or into the hills, I'll actually, you know, go out. If I'm going much over 200 watts, I can easily do it. I'm a big lad but I'll suffer for it tomorrow. So I'll use it as that, okay, I know I'm starting to push too hard because I'm, I'm, into, I'm into tough conditions. And I'll, I'll gear back, I'll increase my cadence, and I'll, I'll make sure that I you know, conserve energy. Because it's not about what I can do right now, it's about what I can do later on today and tomorrow and the next day. So you, you ride by numbers when you're training, you push the power, you do all the high-intensity stuff. So you, as an athlete, you've got that range. But then when you go out on the big rides, you listen to yourself. You're really intuitive about, you know, how you feel and, you know, make sure you're in your own head rather than just staring at a computer screen for 16 hours. And then the only time you really care about those things if you're against tough conditions and then you, you use it as a limiter as opposed to a minimum. I would hate for somebody to go out on a long ride and go, I have to sit at 200 watts all day long because you're going to miss the enjoyment in that ride. It's going to it's going to override any of the, the emotional experience as an athlete. Yeah, I always remember listening to you at the Scottish Learning Festival and you said that um, it's about consistency. You don't, you don't just push hard when it's sunny and then you don't just you know, have a long lie when it's raining. It needs to be consistent with your expeditions. You still a big believer in that? 100%. Yeah. All the, I mean, all the, something I stressed with my team was, if, you know, keep in mind we were doing four, hour, four times four hour sets a day. If we messed around for five minutes every time I got off the bike, that would add a day to the world record. So That's I never, so I never said to, I, so I never said to my team, you know, the average had to be two hundred and forty miles. But some days, because of tailwinds or headwinds or good roads or bad roads or big hills or flat roads, like all these things are outside of your control. So one day, for exactly the same effort, you're going to go two hundred miles. The next day, you're going to go two hundred and eighty miles. Now, if you if you perceive a, a successful day as 240 miles, then anything over that you'll get quite complacent about. 
And if you don't hit 240 miles, you become quite despondent, quite downheartened. So it's a massive emotional roller coaster. But my point is to make 240 miles your average, you have to be able to ride through it as if it's not there. It doesn't matter. It's an output, not an input. The only thing you control is time. So if I ride 16 hours a day, the most commonly asked question when I was meeting folks on the roadside pedaling around the planet was, where are you planning to stop today? And they would expect me to say a town or a place, and I would say 16 hours. It's the only thing I can control. The long-term average will take care of itself. And again, a lot of athletes miss that point because they think, well, as long as I hit my mileage, I'll be fine. Not realizing that over significant durations, i.e. two and a half months, you're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It'll average itself out. But if you stop short at 240, you'll never make it your average. Mm-hmm. So that's most- like you cycled in one day? Uh, about, that- about 280. Right. What was the least? Did you go under? Yeah, under yeah, just under two hundred. I think like one nine seven or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing, amazing how disciplined you have to be with those, even just like those five minute time slots that would add up yeah. to over a day, just uh, over the position. That's fascinating. Right. So, as an ultra endurance athlete, then Mark, there's many different components of fitness which are crucial to achieving optimal performance. See for extreme challenges like the around the world eighty days. What approaches or methods? did you use to prepare your body physically for the workload and I guess the recovery as well? What were the kind of main things? Yeah, I mean, I guess we've covered some of the build-up stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, to asking about the recovery is a great question because people always assume it's about the event. But imagine you've put yourself under that amount of stress. Um, when I finished in Paris and I stood around doing press interviews. My lower back hurt, my leg hurt. I was a wee bit shorter than when I'd left because I'd been sort of, you know, you know, my back was a bit of an S shape from doing 1,200 hours in the time trial bars. So there I was, probably the fittest endurance cyclist on the planet at that point, and I couldn't have even walked 5K without, you know, having a sore back and sore legs. So I was super fit but fit for a purpose because I literally hadn't walked for two and a half months. So, um, you know, people think, well, fitness is one thing. It's not. And um, it took me a good three months of really structured training down to, you know, you can't go from 16 hours a day of exercise to nothing. It simply wouldn't be good for you. Um, And so to straighten my back out, to open my shoulders out, to bring the hips back into alignment, to strengthen the lower back and the legs and to give me, you know, to then build up slowly through hydrotherapy and physio massage, you know, through treatments, through other off-bike exercises till I could eventually go for a jog, go for a run and do the other things I enjoy. But it's bizarre to think, isn't it? You know, you can ride 240 miles a day for two and a half months and you can't walk down the street without getting sore legs. It's amazing. I didn't even think about that. So there was actual physiological changes in your body then after that? Like I, was shorter. I was shorter. I was shorter, yeah. Because of the shape of your spine? Yeah. That is absolutely incredible. So I guess big, it was just when you go. So are you a big fan of the ice baths, then, Mark, for recovery? Because we, as a cold water therapy, you've yeah, so, that. Yeah, so um, you know, active compression. Uh, so using like a, a you know, um, some of the there's lots of different mechanisms. So ice baths, so cold, is particularly good as an anti-inflammatory, but also using sort of big sort of active compression and I don't just mean garments but actually like the ones that are pneumatic you know you actually sort of 
pump air around your your limbs and put a significant amount of pressure because compression has become a bit of a fad and a fashion uh, in recent years. But to do it properly, you actually need a lot of compression. Um, so a lot of these things are, are purely fashion garments. And, um, and you know, the electric system, so what, they're almost like athletes' tens machines, which can be hugely effective as well. So there's, there's all sorts of different mechanisms to, to aid recovery, to, you know, to be a catalyst post-ride so you can then get back on the bike the next day. And so, so what was the main method of recovery then on the actual expedition? Did you have, like, did you have to wear, like, recovery tights when you went to sleep or stuff like that? Yeah, I did, but co- uh, the Compex, which is the, 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 the pneumatic compression machine, was the main one. Um, okay. I had to be very, very careful because when you go to sleep, your uh, heart rate obviously drops significantly. So you've got to get the compression right so it helps uh, in terms of your recovery, but not too tight so you keep circulation. So I've had issues before where I've had compression garments when I slept, and then I've woke up and I've had a, my hands blown up because I literally didn't have the, the blood flow uh, and the circulation in the night. to to So you've got to be very careful wearing compression uh, in your sleep. Um, uh, yeah. Is that just because you were doing those miles, or is that just in general? In general, it's not going to – I mean, anyone listening to this, walking into the local sports store and buying a compression garment is not going to have any problems at all. This is not going to happen, you know, wearing, wearing some tight leggings. But if you buy performance, custom-made compression garments like I do um, and get that level of compression around, you know, very, very quick recovery, you've got to be careful when you, when you sleep in it because you end up basically, you know, cutting off the, cutting off the circulation. Um, so I couldn't get, during training, I'd, I could use ice baths quite a lot on the road, living out of an RV. Uh, so like a motorhome, I, I I couldn't I couldn't use uh, cold um, cold recovery, so I was, I was mainly mainly limited to and also acupuncture as well. When you get a lot of pressure points when you're doing ultra endurance riding, so like really really painful pressure points around the shoulder and whatnot, just locked muscles, and you know you can massage them all day long, but actually sticking a needle into them, you know, is hugely effective. So this is not therapeutic acupuncture this is dry needling this is you know and again you need a very well-trained physiotherapist to do this properly um but that that can be a a great way to release trigger points so the next question we're going to speak about is um, the kind of factors that can impact an athlete's performance and this is basically which is central to the the PE curriculum that we teach and it looks at the the mental emotional physical and social factors um, and the pupils are allowed to choose a sport of their choice and they've got to be able to speak about and understand how they impact their sport or a given sport in a positive or a negative way. So yours is obviously a kind of extreme example, but I guess it does, it's a, it's a good one to speak about and it would help understanding. So C4, we'll, I'll ask you about the mental factor because we kind of touched on the physical there with it in regards to your training and stuff. See with things like, we'll go with concentration because that comes under the mental factor. How important was concentration for you doing your round the world tour? Say you are maybe halfway through or something in that morning shift that you're doing or the graveyard shift as you, you like to call it. How important is that level of focus, especially when you're so tired? Okay, so focus. I mean, if you, if you, if you take a real deep dive into sort of the psychology of an athlete, um, 
your motivation, your fundamental want to do something is got to be at the bottom of that pyramid. Unless you've got the want to do something, then the rest doesn't matter. Uh, focus comes somewhere slightly further up that sort of pyramid. And the harder the intensity of what you are doing, the more focused you need to be. Now, I say that because on the psychological sort of spectrum, sort of pain and discomfort are at the top of that pyramid. And unless you can, your body is telling you not to do things when you're pushing yourself hard. So say you were doing like a 20-minute effort on the bike, something that's really hard. You're pushing near your limit, your, your, your heart and lungs are jumping out your chest, you're sweating buckets, you're, you're, you're really trying. The moment you stop focusing, your body will naturally relax. You can't keep that level of output physiologically if you're not entirely focused on that task because you're ultimately sore. You're hurting yourself. Um, as the intensity level comes down in your activity, your level of focus can obviously fall off a little bit. You know, If you're sitting at zone one, zone two, tapping it along, chatting to people alongside you, you can do that almost through muscle memory and you can't be you can't be you know that switched on all the time so for example you know focus could be anywhere on a spectrum from being fast asleep to sheer terror running away from a tiger so those are those are that's the entire spectrum of being focused um being a, a good athlete is probably in the middle somewhere where you know you've got to be switched on to the task that you're doing, but the more intense, you know, a sprint or outright max effort you're doing, the more tuned in you need to be literally because you need to override the, the physical want to do less because it feels like you're hurting yourself. Um, but I would suggest that the ultra endurance end of the spectrum, you cannot in terms of, your cortisol level in terms of your adrenaline in terms of your you know what's happening you know physiologically you can't be that switched on all the time because you would just yeah. burn out. you'd literally burn all your matches mm -hmm. i don't know if that answers the question you know, it, it does but i'm guessing obviously for what you've achieved with cycling the world in 78 days the level of focus you had to complete that without completely injuring yourself or going off the road or falling asleep on the bike had yeah. to be at some like decent standard. But did you ever have any like lapses in concentration where it had a negative okay. impact? Is, so, 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 I guess so, what I'm trying to ask. So, Mike, so the cortisol is an interesting one. So the cortisol, your stress hormone, mine stayed, ele stayed elevated for two and a half months. So normally you'd see that, um, that sort of, um, those sorts of levels in a performance athlete going into a, 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 you know, a competition for a day or two. Like, so the managed, fact that I managed to keep myself at that elevated state uh, of stress for two and a half months is there's not many medical studies that, that, that show that consistent. So, 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 so you're asking about focus. Like when my alarm went off at half past three in the morning, nobody, nobody ever had to sort of encourage me to get out of bed. I jumped out of bed at half three every morning after five hours sleep and was on the bike at four. I was wired. I was absolutely wired. Why was I wired? I don't know. You know, I was, I'd spent two and a half years building up to this, you know, the year and a half of intense training program, you know, it was a million pound project. It mattered. Like I, I was utterly accountable. Like 
I had 40 people working on that project. And if I failed, everyone failed. So nobody had to ask me twice to do my job. My job was to ride the bike. So that level of focus and intensity came from the fact that, you know, I'd done all the thinking beforehand. You know, I, I never had to give myself a pep talk and go, oh, mm-hmm. does this matter or why am I doing it? So I think your mindset and your principles and your, your, your accountability as an athlete are fundamentally important. You know, that, that, that sits completely aside from your physical ability. I mean, we all know plenty of very physical athletes who don't have determination. So, mm-hmm. you know, having that process in training and understanding yourself and understanding why these things matter and why you suffer, why you push yourself hard as an athlete is fundamentally important. So the focus you're talking about is, is kind of two different levels. One is like, how wired are you on the bike at any one time in terms of the focus to ride in terms of the performance? And I would say that's mm-hmm. relatively low. But, but, but the, the other type of focus you're talking about is almost like the framework for the entire event, like your, your, your sense of purpose, your sense yeah. of commitment to the task and your, your, your underlying drive to keep going as an athlete. And they are two slightly different things because at any one moment you might be more focused because you're riding into a tough headwind or up a hill or you're just you're just simply more switched on to the task but that doesn't that sort of that sort of graph of focus doesn't really affect the underlying framework for this this like your belief systems and your sense of purpose around why you're doing what you're doing mm-hmm. and i guess you say just from the pure scale of the, the expedition that you were doing that is that was enough to get you up without having to get into to get you out of bed and do those pep talks and stuff. So that's um, yeah. an interesting angle to, to take with that one. I think it's also worth saying that, you know, it's people often think that you're sort of some utterly motivated, happy, clappy person. And that's not the truth when you're trying something yeah. this hard, you know, a tough day feels tough. And in terms of your own mental health and well-being, it's important to just really be honest mm-hmm. with yourself Definitely. and others. So, you know, when I wake up and the storm's raging outside, which it did at times, when you feel awful, you know, those points in the world where I'd broken some teeth, I fractured, fractured my elbow, you know, lots of stuff went wrong. Um, you know, at half past three in the morning when you feel like death warmed up, you know, don't give me some cliched American towel like, you know, come on, let's do this, you know, motivational yeah. speech and cliched. I, I don't know what to do with that. Like, yeah. that's not relevant to how I'm feeling. Just tell me the consequence of failing. You know, it's the carrot and the stick. I'm running away from failure. I'm a, I'm a negatively motivated person when I'm feeling down because guess what? A bad day feels bad. And I think it's unrealistic to wrap it up in happy clappy and say, just be happy. Well, it's pretty hard to just be happy when you don't feel happy. So I would much prefer to be honest and say, this is hard. Don't feed yourself some rubbish about what it's not, but remind yourself why it matters. sort of feed yourself sort of you know self-talk around you know understanding what you need to do now to keep the momentum going and why it matters and if you need to feed yourself self-talk around how you'll feel about it afterwards you know this might be awful now but my goodness I'll you know I'll, I'll feel differently about myself once I've done it blah 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 you can you can talk yourself up as much as you want, but just don't lie to yourself. You can't, you can't pretend a bad day is good. And I think, I think for athletes, 
it's so tempting afterwards to wrap it up in heroics and pretend that they're just constantly motivated and brilliant, and they're not. And I don't think it helps younger athletes understand the truth of what it takes to to achieve because it makes it sound like athletes are like inevitably going to be brilliant because they're in some way you know just positive and motivated and driven and that's not the case if you talk to any athlete who's speaking honestly about what they've done they'll tell you how, how hard they've got to fight and yeah, you I think, see the highlights. yeah i think that's a great leveler for athletes and it stops people sort of thinking that there's that otherness anyone can do this stuff you just need to learn like who you are as a person and how to keep going yeah, yeah i think you um, captured that really well in your book as well about all the difficulties and the setbacks and stuff that you experience i think that's uh i think that's the best way to do it because you actually see how difficult it is and you're not just seeing all the the glory and the success you're actually seeing everything that's going on behind the scenes i thought it was yeah. really interesting so yeah it was, it was really interesting um you're speaking about one of the approaches to cope with the fear the positive self-talk that's one that we teach Oh, really? Uh, to the pupils as well. It's one of the emotional factor approaches, yeah. So positive self-talk, obviously, is having a massive impact on your performance anyway. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, I know nothing about the curriculum, so it's interesting to hear how there is actually crossover. And, you know, that positive self-talk is just like shifting the dialogue, shifting the narrative in your own head. Physiologically, if you feel down, if you smile, it's very hard to have a negative thought whilst you smile. And so understanding what little mental tricks you can give yourself to, to, to think your way through a task. So, but, but, but being honest with yourself, you know, being, being okay with yourself if you don't feel okay, but, but ultimately having, having tricks to, to, to get through that. Because trust me, that's the life-affirming stuff. That's the career-defining things. You know, when you're afterwards telling your friends about what you did, you won't reflect on the easy bits. You reflect on the hard bits. And whilst it might feel tough at the time, knowing yourself well enough to be able to get through those moments is, is really glorious, you know. And I think if you do that enough, you, you, you get to – you don't go looking for – you don't go looking for the hard stuff, but you, you, you do realize that out of the struggle, you know, come your fondest memories. And, and what's, what's, what's life about? Life is about creating great memories. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. See, with regards to the, that's the last factor I can want to ask you about in this one then. So see with regards to the social factor, that covers things like etiquette, team dynamics, um, for like invasion games like football, we look at like crowd factors and stuff like that. But with regards to team dynamics, and I know I read in your book how it took you quite a while to select the correct team, and that was important that you got that right. How much did, like, how important was that team for you then to make this a successful oh. project? How important was team dynamics, I guess? Massively important. I mean, I had a logistics, performance, and media team, uh, six to eight on the road at any one time, but 40 in total. Uh, so it's a huge team. And, you know, as I joked about before, you know, if I fail, we all fail, but Ultimately, if they don't do their jobs, I can't do my job. So, you know, the inter and we got to the point before the world where I'd planned it with them, but then I handed over all the controls to them and said, quite clearly, it's your job to get me around the world. I've got one job, and that's to ride the bike. I can't run this expedition from the bike. So that level of responsibility and delegation was hugely important. But I, I never underestimated, like, the, the emotional leadership because even though you can hand over all the nuts and bolts of the project, I was acutely aware that because I was the athlete at the heart of it, if I smiled, you know, my team would smile. But if I got out of the van in the morning looking worried, 
they'd be worried. So they really took their emotional cues from me. And I think athletes really need to think about that as well. So their support team's entire success is based on their success. So you've actually got a real responsibility as an athlete to shoulder the expectations of your friends, your family, the crew around you. And that's hard. That's tiring. You know, you know, you want to just be able to go, do you know what? Just let me be an athlete. But you've got to realize that there's this amazing feedback loop happening between you and the world around you and that happens on social media as well you know I'm a broadcaster and you know this you can't get away from the social media aspects of storytelling and there's this incredible burden of expectation from the world watching you and as an athlete of any level you need to get used to that you know how you share your story and how you make the most of that positive feedback loop but ultimately keep the narrative very private as well in terms of your own motivations and and whatnot but because people invest in your success as an athlete, that comes with a certain responsibility. So you've got to be very aware of how you, how you sort of beam back your emotions into the world. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I didn't even think about it as from the kind of emotional cues as well. That's a, a good point that you, that you touched on there and how, how important that is for the, the team morale and um, to get going, I guess, getting back up every morning and getting them to do their job successfully and how it just has to work, operate like clockwork, like down to, I guess it would have been down to like all your food, everything like that as well. Just everything yeah. just had to be done for you besides the cycling. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so Mark, just touched on um, mindset a lot uh, throughout the podcast so far. Um, I'm a massive advocate of uh, teaching the value of growth mindset um, to uh, allow the you know, the pupils to understand, the, you know, what is possible and uh, tap into their belief systems and, you know, their potential so they can take more action on their, on their studies. Um, how do you view um, mindset in terms of your expeditions? And I suppose I'd quite, quite like to get your opinion on the nature versus nurture debate um, that you've probably heard about in terms of um, becoming an athlete or, or doing expeditions like uh, the ones you take on. Sure. Um, I mean, in terms of growth mindset, I think it goes back to probably the very first thing we were talking about, you know, understanding how young people, but people of all ages, build the ability to not just spot opportunities, but back their ideas. You know, I run workshops with corporates all the time when there's no shortage of great ideas. There's no shortage of blue skies thinking and innovation and creativity. And then when you ask people, you know, and what is your plan? They tend to simply say, "Well, what do other people do?" <laughs> and and you, and you sort of you sort of question that and go, "At what point are you questioning your own innovation, your own creativity, your own ideas?" So it's very easy to have ideas. Children do it, adults do it less, but we all have great ideas every day. But are we in a habit? We are creatures of habit. Are we in the habit of? not just looking around us and going, well, what does the, what's the norm? You know, everyone else is wearing black shoes. Why don't I wear brown shoes? And I'm not being like some, you know, anti-establishment, you know, challenger here. I'm just saying question, be questioning. Why are things the norm? Why is the average the average? Like if you spot a different way of doing something, then back yourself, take that idea and, and do it. So growth mindset for me is more about having the conviction of your ideas. And you'd be amazed when you take steps and back yourself, how other people 
take wonderful strength from that as well. So in the playground dynamic, it can be incredibly hard to step out. I was, a, I was homeschooled for primary school, so I didn't have any reference points for what was right or wrong. I turned up at high school, a school of 1,300 kids, and I immediately, quite naturally, sort of moved towards the average in every sense. You know, haircut, backpack, color, you know, the shoes I wore, the, the way I spoke, everything is about conforming. And when you leave school, it becomes about your individual traits. It becomes about your advantages. It becomes about your passions, your interests, the things which you do, which only you can do. And again, in the workplace, that can get, get squeezed out of you. And you can become just a hamster on the wheel doing a job that anyone else can do. And ultimately, you want to end up in a space in life where you're valued because of who you are, not just because of what you do. So if you're just valued in life and your job or your career because of the nuts and bolts of what you do and what you know, then anyone else can do that who's got the same education. Whereas what makes you unique is your network, your confidence, your resilience, your, your ability to have an even emotional keel regardless of the pressure. So you're the same in a good day and a bad day. Those are things which set you apart. So growth mindset for me, you know, harks back to the very first thing we said in this, in this podcast. Nature, nurture, it's the same thing. Like, we're all built with an, we were all born with an equal opportunity. Yes, we've got different DNA. Yes, as athletes, we've got different natural attributes. Mm-hmm. But, but, but really, the most successful athletes on planet Earth are, are those who you assimilate those things that are closest to you. So, you know, if, if you're surrounded by crime, you might become a criminal. If you're surrounded by athletes, you might become an athlete. Um, now, people in the western world love the outlier story they love the idea of like i came from nothing i was you know self-made whatever that's that's a very common narrative of success in the western world but when you bore down on it it's normally a bit more interesting you know you're you're hugely influenced by your environment by your teachers by your parents by your closest friends those are the things that shape who you are as a young person and um so nature, nurture, we're all born with a certain toolkit, but then the, the, the environment that surrounds us sends us down subtly different paths. So over the course of time, we end up in a completely different place than somebody else who was born with exactly the same opportunities. And by the time you get to my age, 37, 38, it's nurture. Like the, the things which gave you the competitive advantages as a kid, you know, there's been so many crossroads in your life by this point. It's all the choices you've made and the opportunities you've taken. Yeah, I think you've said that, put that really nicely there about how important it is to surround yourself with people with, you know, similar passions to you, and you know that will really impact you. Um, peer pressure is a massive thing, and I thought I thought what you said about the growth mindset as well. Um, I suppose it's just about stay, staying staying curious, isn't it? And always looking for maybe a different way. Yeah, that's a lovely phrase. Stay curious. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so you've been in many extremely dangerous and challenging circumstances um, from you know, reading about your uh, ocean rowing as well. Um, can you maybe tell the listeners a, a bit about the story where you had to be rescued from the ocean? Um, it's, it's a really fascinating one and how you were able to stay calm in that very traumatic uh, situation. Fascinating is not the word I used at the time. Um, <laughs> so trying to break the mid-Atlantic world record, uh, six, uh, 3,000 miles ocean rowing from the African coast in Morocco across to Barbados. Day 28, 
Uh, and we thought we had another world record in the bag. We thought we'd done it. We were, you know, within days of landfall and we capsized. And we spent 14 hours trying to be rescued. I won't go into details. There's simply not time. But it took six hours to salvage the kit that was needed to save the lives of the six crew. And we'd all done the training. We all knew what to do, the offshore survival, the radio courses, the flares, all the kit that we needed. But the truth of the matter is, in those first few critical hours, um, well, we sat on, we got the life raft out, and then we had a very rational conversation about what needed done in what order. And what eventually happened was only two out of the six of us ever left that life raft, did the swims, did the dive, salvaged the kit, and ultimately rescued the crew. And so at one o'clock in the morning, we got picked up by a Taiwanese cargo vessel and spent the next 10 days slowly coming back across the Atlantic before being dropped off in Gibraltar. And it really made me reflect on what's the difference between knowing what to do and doing it. All the guys had the physical strength, the training, you know, they had what it took, but mentally, like fundamentally, I guess some of the crew, it was an unspoken assumption that somebody else would do it. It was like a, an unspoken team dynamic, which, you know, as you turn the heat up in a situation, as it becomes more stressful, some people just go, ah, I'm out. And it's whether you naturally step forward or step back in a situation like that. And, you know, I've learned through enough dangerous, difficult situations that, you know, I need to step forwards. You know, I go very analytical. The emotions come afterwards. You know, it's not like you don't have them. My goodness, you get upset afterwards. But during these high pressure situations, I've learned to, you know, be very process driven. And I would never assume that somebody else is going to save my life. Uh, now, if they can, and they play a part in that, fantastic. But I'm never going to close my eyes and hope for the best. Because, you know, if you were to ask all six of us about a tough day at the office, they'd tell you an amazing story. We've got the same thing to say on our CV, survive capsize in the Atlantic. But that doesn't for a moment talk about, you know, what was being said, who did what, or just accountability. You know, so I was there, doesn't really cover it. And it's made, it's made me put together my teams very differently from that day forth. So would you say you really learn about people then in, in moments where things go wrong? Would you say you learn more about yourself in those moments? Uh, both, yeah, for sure. I mean, I used to be very impressed. When you speak to somebody, it's very tempting to make assumptions and hear what you want to hear. So if somebody tells you about them capsizing the Atlantic, you'll suddenly attribute to them all sorts of character traits and responsibilities that you assume with that situation. So, you know, in somebody's workplace, they'll say, oh, I worked for, you know, I worked for Red Bull or whatever, you know, and then you suddenly join the dots for them. You suddenly assume, oh, you must have a high powered job. You must get to fly around the world. You must do this, that, and the next thing. Yeah, definitely. And so it's very tempting with anyone in life to just give them the benefit of doubts. And somebody tells you a story and, and, and by association, you suddenly make a lot of assumptions about who they are. Now, I was there doesn't mean anything. I can work for a big corporation. I can capsize in the Atlantic. I can go on any journey I want. It doesn't for a moment tell you that, that individual behavior or responsibility. So I, I've, I've very much stopped in my career making assumptions for people but I can tell somebody's on their hobby horse and talking about something there if I'm in an interview situation 
I, I stop people when they're on their hobby horse and ask them about the opposite. And if I to ask somebody about, you know, coping with pressure or a bad day at the office, and, you know, you can tell within a couple of lines whether somebody's out their depth, you know, whether they've got that real personal understanding of process and responsibility under pressure. Because just sort of saying, I worked for a big fancy company or I, I was in that crazy expedition doesn't in and, in and of itself explain who they are as a person. So I think I'm much better at sort of cutting through the, the glitz and getting to the core of, you know, people's experience and people's, you know, abilities to cope with pressure. And that's fundamentally important. So I think, you know, when you're working with people in life, just um, just be very careful you're not you're not making assumptions in their behalf. You know, you're not, you're not, you're not seeing what you want to see, mm-hmm. you know, really ask questions and really listen to what they're saying because uh, we've all got that bias. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Mark, then, with all the kind of challenges and all these situations that you've been in with around the world, capsizing in the, in the Atlantic, you've got an absolute wealth of experience in these kind of high pressure situations. Um, do you feel participating in these extreme feats of endurance has helped you in your professional life? And what are the kind of key lessons that you've taken? Because a lot of them, I guess, are like transferable into your yeah. life as well. Yeah. So I mean, I always joke that these days I spend half my life, you know, as a life as a as a as an athlete, and half my life as a, you know, in a suit. Um, I w- I would never give up both. Like either, I enjoy both. I find having a public profile and working in sport is hugely useful for my corporate life. Mm-hmm. And I have remarkably similar conversations in the investment entrepreneurial world that I work in than I do as an athlete. So is it useful? Yeah, it's useful. It's useful on two fronts. One, because uh, having a credibility and a profile in one walk of life is relevant in another. So if people see you as successful, as you know good at communicating as um investable (laughs) then you know you can then do something different and people you know you know people sort of transfer that credit across if you like uh but the other really important part is in terms of skill sets i've spent my life uh, you know as an athlete building startups so you know i have an idea I build the finance for it. I build the broadcast and the media for it. I recruit the team. And then as an athlete, I get to do the thing I want to do. So I've probably lived that journey eight, 10 times now, you know, each one taking, you know, anywhere between half a year and two and a half years. So when you're used to like having people telling you something's impossible, going out there and building the project to make it possible and then telling the story afterwards and then leveraging that and, you know, ultimately building a sustainable and growth business if you then go into early stage investing in science, engineering, and technology companies, which is what I do, I go into Scottish universities, meet PhD students, and you know, into the laboratories, and find people who are coming out with the biggest and best ideas around impact investing. These are solutions which are really needed for the world we live in. So this is not just about building businesses that grow financially, but get businesses that are answering global questions around things like climate change, mm-hmm. you know, around healthcare. Where 40% of our portfolio is in healthcare and directly addressing things around, you know, cancer oncology and, and, you know, testing for, 
um, you know, pandemics like coronavirus. So, so, so these are not fads and fashions. This is not somebody inventing the next thing you'll find on the high street. These are businesses that are addressing a global market that are coming out of Scottish research institutions and universities and are really important, but they all face the same problems. So whether you're cycling around the world in 80 days or building a, you know, a cancer research company, you've got the same challenges around being a trailblazer, building the right team, you know, what's your route to market? How do you tell that story? How do you build finance? So are those skill sets relevant? Yeah, 100%, 100%. And I get the same buzz out of both. I'll never give up being an athlete in training because I enjoy that and it's good for the soul. But, you know, I get the same buzz from early stage businesses. I don't think all athletes would agree with that. You know, some athletes just want to be athletes and train hard and do the physical side. But I think a lot of athletes like the project building side. They like the, the entrepreneurial side of it as well. And if you've got that bone in your body, it's, it's great fun. Mm-hmm. And would you say that the, the skills that are developed through being an athlete, like time management and you know, your work ethic, is that transferable in, into your, um, yeah. your job? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's one of the biggest things that you see in the workplace. You know, former athletes, amateur, professional, you know, if you're used to getting up early in training, if you're used to having timetables around training and the discipline and accountability around it, then your work ethic is is really strong. So, um, you know, especially especially solo athletes, you know, um, team athletes can have it as well, for sure, but it, it depends how what level of responsibility you've taken around your own life as an athlete. So some rugby players and football players and hockey players, you know, you can become very good, but just as part of a system. Whereas you get others within that system that take real responsibility for their strength and conditioning, for making sure they're really on top of it. They, 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 they've got a great relationship with the coaches and managers and understanding what, needed, what is needed when. And they tend to be the athletes who are asking questions, who are, who are really keen to know more and understand the process as opposed to just sort of be on that journey passively. Whereas solo athletes tend, and endurance athletes, adventure athletes, tend to have to build more infrastructure around them. They tend to need to know the nutritional side and how to cook. They tend to need to know like how to build their own training schedules or be disciplined to be able to train on their own when their buddies aren't there. So I think naturally adventure, endurance and solo athletes have to build that process and accountability around them, whereas team athletes can have that if they want to, if they really engage in the process and are inquisitive and are wanting to know more. But you can become very good as a team athlete, uh, as, a, as a passenger to that system, just doing what you're told to do, sort of like almost being in the class. So, so, so there, is, there are different skill sets that come out of different sports. It's a lot of it's like principles as well that just transfer translate across, and that's the same. And um, that's what we've kind of seen from interviewing like these different people, like athletes, teachers, and um, lecturers, people that even like speech and language therapists. There's all these kind of key principles that translate regardless of the the kind of profession you're in. And it's um, again that's just kind of solidified that for us. So yeah. I think I think I think as well, Lewis, it's our job as well, and our day to day interactions with the kids, you know, to make them aware that skills for learning life and work, like this communication, your teamwork, your discipline, Aye, it helps you in, in sports, the vehicle to teach them the value of those skills in sport. And then when they go to maths as well, it's the same principles that they take into maths and English with them, that competitive edge. Yeah, and it's the skills that will be with them for kind of lifelong. So. Yeah. 
Right, so to round us off with the, the, the main part of the interview then, Mark, um, you've kind of, well, in my opinion, I would say you've done pretty much everything with regards to endurance cycling with that, with that record under your belt. But what kind of short and long-term goals have you set yourself with regards to your cycling career, if you've got any in the pipeline? Or? So, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of feel the last ride around the world was my Everest in terms of ultra-endurance. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to cycle around the world a third time. But I've got a bucket list of some of the world's biggest endurance events that I would love to take on. I've never really stood on the start line with other athletes. So events like Race Across America, the Cape Epic, some of these big ultra-endurance races, um, they're iconic. And I'd love to see how I, you know, I fared in a, in a competitive field. I'll continue to make films, you know, documentaries. Because of COVID this year, I've recently shot two films in Scotland, a big gravel bikepacking film around the Cairngorms. And just last week I was out shooting another film around Arden Merkin and Mull and, you know, big adventure film, fell running and, and gravel and road riding. So I'll continue to make films. was just um, brainstorming a, a documentary up in the polar Arctic um, today. So, yeah, I'll continue to be a filmmaker, continue to push myself as an athlete. But, you know, in terms of that record-breaking stuff, I'd kind of prefer to almost slow down now and do more hard, hard expedition rides rather than and more gravel and off road rather than just sort of nailing big distances on the road. So um, and and mixing it up, you know, you know, I'm a passionate fellow runner as well, open water swimming. Um, for me, it's more about where these adventures can take you rather than what the mode of transport is yeah. and keeping it keeping it interesting. I love the history of sport. You know, over the last couple of years, I've done a lot of recreations like recreating the the first Tour de France back in 1903, riding vintage bicycles or breaking the oldest British cycling record, which was the hour record on a penny farthing. You know, I love the history of sport. And I was shooting a few weeks ago a story about bicycles in World War One and the way on the Fife coastline boys were given bicycles to patrol and look out for attacking ships. So there I was dressed as a 1914, you know, uh, you know, um, soldier uh, pedaling an, an, an old Royal Sunbeam bicycle up and down the coast. So it doesn't need to be about cycling around the world. For me, it's about interesting stories and people and making films. And um, I've just finished writing a book called Endurance. And I've tried to capture all these experiences from the last 25 years or so. And, you know, I want it to be a source of information, but also just inspiration to get people out there pushing their distances, pushing their mileage. You know, that's the great leveler with endurance sports. We can't all be a power athlete or we can't all be a sprint athlete, but we can all endure. Everyone can go further. And I think, you know, young or old, male or female, endurance is, is something we can all do. So with regards to the, the world records for, like, distance cycling, stuff like that, you feel pretty content with that now then that you've... Yeah. Brilliant. So, um, Mark, just sorry, just finally, see, there's one, one question that's been burning um, the full podcast, but don't take it the wrong way. I'm not, I'm not being cheeky with that. Would you think it would be possible to go faster than 17 yeah. days? Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's fun, interesting, isn't it? Because we broke the record by 37%. You're not going to break it by another 37%. Mm-hmm. Um, but knowing what we know now, if you had the right process, the right funding, the right team, yeah, you could go quicker. I mean, it's going to be hard, but I'll be fascinated to see if and when that happens. I know, it's always uh, that's You've just set the next yeah. benchmark, the next target, I guess. Well, I'm sure you've motivated and inspired others around the world to, 
take on challenges, maybe not cycling around the world, but something that they're interested in. Yeah, that's what I hope. That's great. Definitely. Definitely motivated and inspired myself and Lewis to take on endurance challenges um, in terms of ultra running. That's where it all started from that moment I was in the Scottish Learning Festival presentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you've definitely had an impact on, on myself and Lewis. Superb, superb. So with... Um at the end of our podcast, I like just have a wee bit of fun. So we do a wee quick fire round of three questions. So just three quick questions for you, Mark. If you could have a billboard anywhere, um, or in fact, maybe let's put it like this. If you could have a billboard during the, the graveyard shift of a cycling expedition, what would it say on it? <laughs> um, so it's something I often get written on my bikes. So a custom decal, decal. And um, it's it's always been abbreviated with me and my friends as just, hashtag TTC which is time to commit and uh, it's just a it's just a little phrase to myself which uh you know is a joke amongst friends because normally you say well I committed a long time ago but um but it's just that it's just that sense of it matters just just get stuck in so if, if you're having a if you're having a tough ride I often look down on my bikes and I'll just say time to commit on the frame but that'd be a good thing to have on a billboard I think that's one we can share with the, the pupils as well that could be a phrase they could use for their positive <laughs> definitely right, TTC so, how has a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success or do you have a favourite failure? Well, I mean, the Atlantic nearly killed me, but uh, I've definitely learned a lot from that. Um, not least I got married eight weeks later, which was definitely <laughs> not, not a direct response to nearly dying, but, <laughs> but <laughs> it was... Um, no, I've done a lot of things differently since the Atlantic. Uh, I've been in a lot, of, a lot of tight corners and you learn from everyone, but... Um, you know, they always say, you know, success is a lousy trainer. You know, it's, um, you know, the more you're successful, the more you try and replicate what you've done. Whereas when you fail, you're forced to change. Yeah. So you don't go looking for failure, but you obviously learn more from failures than successes. That goes without saying. And, and would you say you're finished with ocean rowing then? I'd love to do some more. I'd love to do some more coastal rowing, like rowing through the Arctic or around the Scottish coast. I absolutely love that sense of change. I'll be, I'll be honest. I found the Atlantic a bit boring. It's big waves, little waves. Um, so I just I didn't find what I needed in the Atlantic. So forget the capsize, which was you know a bit upsetting. I I I was a bit bored with it, and it's the only time I've ever been on an expedition. Where I was like, I don't like. There's none of that cultures, people, places, landscapes. The stuff which is like the you know, it's like a, you see the world like a slideshow. It's fascinating. Whereas the Atlantic's just waves. Yeah. Yeah. That must be mentally draining. To imagine. Yeah. And I mean, I know sailors and rowers that love that, but I didn't find why I love adventure. Yeah. So final one there, Mark, what advice would you give to a young teenage athlete? Um, what advice would I give to a young teenage I mean, you've got to enjoy it. Simple as that. You've got to enjoy it. So I don't want to be one of those people that says, you know, keep doing it. You have to do it. This, that, and the next thing. I want young athletes to realize that sport, athletics, whatever you're passionate about is likely to be a passport to something else. So the discipline, the process, the physical agility, you know, the physical competence to do these things can transfer to so many other things in life. Mm -hmm. So you need to, if you enjoy it, keep doing it. Yeah. Try and surround yourself by, you know, friendship groups and people who support the things you enjoy doing. Because at that, those really formative years is when most people, especially 
especially girls, get put off sport. So finding the right friendship groups, the people around you who can support your ambitions. And if you don't enjoy doing it and you fundamentally don't because you don't enjoy it, not because you're for what your friends think, then don't feel obliged or forced to carry on. You know, by the time you're a teenager, you've got your own mind. And, and it's really important that your parents support your wishes and your teachers and your your peer group support your wishes so if you can as a young athlete have the independence of mind to keep the fun in it enjoy what you're doing and realize that it's likely to not be your career but it will be a really important part of your life and you know give you such wonderful memories and skill sets to take into other things yeah i think that's um, some really good advice here and again we touched on it earlier how there's a lot of transferable skills and stuff that can be taken from sport and into other areas of your life. So I think that's um, I think that's absolutely fantastic. And I think that rounds us off um, nicely with the, today's episode. So thanks again for agreeing to do this with us today, Mark. We're um, sure this will help current teachers across the country and the kind of next generation of student teachers coming through. Um, and it's certainly been a great, it's been great chatting with you. And I feel it's, I've taken a lot from it. So we're really grateful for your time. It's been great fun. Well, good on you for making the podcast happen and uh, feel free to keep in touch. Right, Mr. Cleland, we've reached the end of another episode of A Wee Bit of Everything and that was just simply wonderful. That was tremendous. I absolutely loved everything Mark had to say. He could sit and chat all night and get into the real nitty-gritty details of, you know, his endurance career and, you know, pushing himself to the limit. You know, we covered a lot of things in there. Uh, all his achievements, you know, some factors impacting questions, some training-related training programme questions, fitness testing, growth mindset, all in relation to his around-the-world trip. Um, in under 80 days so uh, what would your key takeaway messages be then for the listeners first and foremost I would uh, agree with you there I could have sat there all day and spoke to Mark I'd like to have picked his brains a lot more about his kind of adventure challenges and that that he's he's done but um, there wasn't enough time so that would just be that would have been brilliant to sit down and pick his brains about that but no I thought there was a lot of really good information in there with the questions that we asked he gave us some really quality answers but what I thought was was really good is how he how how he kind of showed that his sport and his athletic career has the power to leverage his professional career as well. They can interlink all the principles and the skills and how much like the time management, the discipline, the communication, all of those softer skills translate from an athletic career into a kind of professional career as well and how he actually does workshops and works with students um, and all those kind of lessons that he's learned through his extreme challenges have shaped him kind of into the person that he is and the kind of line of work that he's gone down. He's, it's almost as if he's used those challenges as projects in and of themselves to make a living and I thought that was absolutely fascinating. So there's a lot that can be taken from an athletic career and transferred into any other line of work so I thought that was was really good and I think it places huge value on sport doesn't it and physical activity and endurance um, and how and can I, teach you these teach these lessons sport can teach you literally everything like all of these skills it can teach you so much leadership communication respect timekeeping responsibility there's just so many things that sport teaches you without actually explicitly looking at them do you know what I mean so being involved mm -hmm. in sport and especially individual sports like obviously that's an extreme example like endurance cycling like you're 
you have to have all these things to be successful in that sport and then those things are kind of second nature to you those softer skills and then they translate into other areas of your life so I thought it was absolutely brilliant to hear mm-hmm. that it's definitely, it's definitely taught me to be more disciplined like getting up early and running and just getting the job done it translates into you be more productive as well during the day I think it's taking action isn't it you can have all the ideas in the world but it's, it's actually getting to the start line taking action and Mark put it nicely um, you can have all the ideas in the world but it's it's getting that, those ideas to the start line yeah um, I saw no that was an absolutely fascinating fascinating episode and I, I can't wait to listen to this one back what was your key takeaway messages in with with Mark tonight well we covered a lot so I'll pick your positive self talk it's interesting to hear how important that is in all of the guests well most of the guests especially the athletes that we've interviewed and Positive self-talk is such a useful strategy to maintain focus or boost your motivation or just you know, keep yourself on track um, and try and get the job done, whether that's cycling around the world in 80 days or whether that's completing a project at work or even just you know planning a lesson. could be you know, so many things it translates into you know, and really just having that positive dialogue with yourself um, will really impact the quality of the outcome and he used that when he was feeling down and he had a bad day he had to make sure that he was having a positive conversation with himself um, and not a negative one which was, was then having an impact on his performance positively uh, so that's something that it's came up it's came up before so I just thought I'd kind of pick up on the positive self-talk and it's, trans, it's transferable um, into your your own work or whether you're trying to run a marathon or whatever comes in handy in so many parts of life um, and I know there's a quote that the most important conversation is one you have with yourself and I think that's been made evident in the interview tonight especially if you're on a bike for 16 hours a day for 78 days like let that sink in that just like a lot of people just, you, you can't even me included can't even fathom fathom yeah. that like it's that's difficult to process unless you've actually been out and done some sort of endurance and then you can actually appreciate how difficult that must actually be. So Yeah. Imagine um, sitting on the bike for that, that amount of time. The conversation with yourself has to be positive or you wouldn't yeah. sustain it. No. You just wouldn't think mm-hmm. of that. You don't really get a, ch- a chance to chat with anybody apart from maybe your team at night or in the morning. But uh-huh. it's really, really important that that conversation with yourself is Right, it's a positive it's one. Po- it's positive, aye. Yeah, a positive headspace, aye. Consider, like, for, especially when you've got like that headwind or you've got adverse weather conditions and stuff like that, it needs to be, it needs to be positive. Um, yep. Especially when, when it's a, an expedition that's such a long period of time. But, and did you not find it fascinating just that he, after like the physiological changes in his body as well, after yeah. he finished, he was... I was shorter. He was shorter when he got off the bike. I just thought that was absolutely crazy. His spine had changed shape just because of the repetitive position that he was in for. Yeah. Sorry, I wonder, if, that, I wonder if that's something. I wonder if that's something that's was predicted, maybe. I don't know by his team or by the experts that surrounded him. Yeah, or, potentially. I wonder, no, I, wonder, I, wonder if, I wonder if he knew that. Could have happened. Yeah. Well, uh, that was a, a fascinating episode, and I loved that I could have sat there all night, but. You've got an ending coming. Aye, that, that's, that was my last takeaway message. <laughs> <laughs> my final takeaway message will be picking up the ending. I'm just my final takeaway that. message is a chicken tikka chasney for nibbles. So um, <laughs> I'll go and enjoy that before we... Well, I wasn't about to have this tomorrow. week, so you deserve it. 
As always, if you see us on Instagram, at the wee bit of everything podcast or on Twitter at Borough Mister underscore Mister or Cleland Lewis94, we would welcome a share or a retweet um, to try and get that podcast out there a wee bit. So we really hope you enjoyed this episode and we thank you very much for listening. Until the next time, take care. Bye folks. <laughs>